Hi, I'm Pastor Kenneth Lusayel of the Vivify Ministries, and it is my joy that your heart is awakened to the finished works of Christ with such powerful simplicity. Are you ready? All right, here we go. Amen. Glory to Jesus. Hallelujah. Come on, if you are excited to be completing the book of 1 John this evening, after such a long time, two months, come on, give Jesus such a riveting shout. Glory to God. My goodness, what a book. What a book we've been on and what a, what a teaching series. And maybe some of you started the series with us on show. How is this a love letter? I think it's clear now. I think it's very clear that this indeed is a commission to all of us as believers to walk in the commandments of the Lord. And we have established what those commandments are. The basic commandments of love. To love God with all of our hearts and to love those uh, around us. Praise the name of Jesus. Amen. We're wrapping up the teaching series and it's a title I've called Godfidence. What I'm about to do this evening, I don't know if it's possible. I hope so. We are going to do it because what we're, doing to, what we're trying to do is to complete 21 verses in roughly about an hour and a half. And so far, if you've noticed, there was a whole week where we did one hour, 30 minutes on just eight verses. And we're doing 21. And I'm not trying to rush this. I really think that a lot of the things that are in this book, in this chapter, have been repeated already. And so we really don't need to rehash as much as uh, when we were establishing the foundation before. So it's going to be much easier. But then you're going to come across some very weird concepts you probably never even thought of or imagined in this chapter. And we're going to talk about those uh, as well. But I want to start with this. I want to start with something very powerful. Um, and it's something that has to do with your place in the Lord. So here's what I believe. I believe that when you grow in your spiritual maturity, I really believe that when you come to understand the Lord, two things will start to show. When you start to grow spiritually, when you start to grow to the measure of the fullness of the stature of Christ, there's some things that you start to look like. The first one which I've established is that you start to walk in love much more, easier and more effortlessly. It's easier to love people. It's easier to love God. You just beam love every time. You, you can talk to people. You can show love. You can sacrifice. That's one mark that truly you've come to understand the Lord of, you know, the Lord who is himself, love, you know. So that's one mark. But, you know, the second thing, when I remember the story of, when I remember the story of Peter, the disciple of Jesus, when he's going out, he's fishing, all right. Um, sorry, I just want to ask the media team to help me. My media team, <laughs> just one person. Can you help me just switch to the slide so I can see myself? So I know if I'm in frame. Thank you very much. Thank you. Great. All right. So this is a story of a man called Peter. And, and, and Peter has labored. And, and, and some of you have watched the, the Chosen series. I like the perspective they gave to it. But obviously, it was a night where you don't expect much catch. And probably he was trying to pay off some debts. He had to work. You know, on Shabbat, which is a day you should not be found working, you know, and he had to do this and do that. Um, and then he's fishing. 
no catch. And finally, at some point, he meets this guy, you know, who just comes, who has no, you know, background in, in, in fish farming or, or fishing, has no idea of agricultural science. And this man tells him, go back and, and, and catch fish. And he's looking at it like, bro, do you know what we've been doing? How can you, you know that kind of thing where, <laughs> you know, you've done everything you can, someone just tells you to do the same thing. Maybe you've applied for something for so long and you've been rejected many times and someone says, just go and apply. And you're like, bro, how is this second time going to be any better? How? How is this going to change? I've applied for my visa severally. How is it going to change? I've applied for, for that job. I've been rejected severally. You're telling me to do the same thing that I've been doing again. What is the difference? And little did Peter know that the difference was literally the one who had sent him to try again. And so Peter said, okay, okay, you stranger, I have no idea who you are. You look great, by the way. You look like some cool dude. And because you look good and you look proper, you seem like you know what you're saying. You seem confident. Uh, we can try again, right, Andrew? We can try. All right. And so they row their boat. They row their boat. They go back to sea and they cast their nets. And then what happens? Supernaturally, miraculously, the Lord of all creation who can speak to the storms and it and stops and he can, can, and can you know, organize the animals, the same God. How do you think, first of all, that all the animals on the earth entered into Noah's ark? You think Noah is that skilled? You think he's a good farmer? And he will call, how you going to talk, uh, snake, alpha, come, I beg, snake, let's go. How? I believe it was a miraculous act of the Lord moving these beings to where they should be. In the same way in the water, the same God of all creation, who in person now was Jesus Christ, moved the fishes to that location. And supernaturally. And it, it, it's so powerful how that in such an ordinary task, in your day-to-day -day job, oh my God, this is so powerful, that literally in your day-to-day -day job, you can experience the supernatural intervention of God to bring profiting in your job. This was his nine to five. And Jesus stepped into the situation and said, cast your net. This time around is going to be productive. This time around, your performance ratings are going to show. It's going to be good. And guess what? The fishes come in and they literally, to the point that they had to call the guys from the other boat to assist them. And it was breaking and the, the net was breaking and they put it into their boat. The boat was sinking. They had, <laughs> they had to push this boat to shore. So they were safe again. And do you know what happened when Pete, oh my goodness, Peter saw what had just happened and he fell to his knees and bowed down and said, Lord, just go away from me. I'm a sinful man. Go away from me. And Jesus looks at him and says, it's cute that you, you're doing this and all, but I have plans for you. I'm going to make you a fisher of men. I've shown you that, look, in terms of catching fish, I can help you do that, but there's something bigger. One thing I, I see from that story are two things. First of all is the fact that Jesus turned this guy's story around. This, Jesus literally could change a seemingly mundane task, seemingly ordinary job, and make it profitable. When Jesus steps into a situation that is unprofitable, in a situation where you feel stuck, things move. The second thing, of course, that I see is that 
the, you know, the goodness of God leads to repentance, which is what, you know, the book of uh, the, the, the Bible says in Romans chapter 2. The goodness of God does lead to repentance, and that's exactly what Peter was trying to do. But here's the thing. Peter's stance at that point was one where he wasn't confident. It's one where he was distant. It's one where he felt he was separated from this man called Jesus. Where he felt, look, I, I don't have any relationship with him. I don't. The same thing, similarly, that when this guy messed up, Judas Iscariot, right? And I don't want to spend too much time on this, but when Judas Iscariot uh, messed up, something happened to his confidence. When Peter messed up, something happened to his confidence, but somehow he still stayed. He still came back. At least he was around where he could be tempted to deny Jesus. He still stuck around. The other disciples, where were they? Nowhere to be found. But Judas did the betrayal. And what did Judas do? For you to come to a point where you realize the God of compassion and mercy, the one you had followed for three and a half years, who had met people who were sick and told them your sins are forgiven, and met the, the adulterous woman and the prostitute who had sinned severally, and, and showed compassion to these people and told them their sins were forgiven. This same guy who had followed him for these amount of years did not once think that if I come back to this man, that I will be forgiven. That the rest of the brothers will forgive me. He didn't think that at all. And what happened? His confidence to approach God was zero. He went ahead and killed himself. It's a very sad story. But... Something happened with Peter that he was able to know that, look, I will be forgiven. He came back. He came back. He denied three times, but he came back. And I, I want to just use this as, a, as, a, as an establishment for you to know that, first of all, God is kind to you, even when you are not. Peter, he didn't tell Peter, look, you, you are a man. Yeah, why are you a man? Go and change your ways. I have a gift for you. Change your ways. And then I'll, I'll do, give you a surprise, you know, and, and I'll give you those fishes that you've been asking for. That's not what he did. There was no requirement other than he was Peter and he was there and that was all. Only the fact that God had called this man to do the work he has called him to do and showed him kindness. The goodness of God comes before there is a need for repentance. But guess what? It doesn't stop there. God wants that beyond what Peter did in that moment, that you can come to him boldly. That if you were not called to him because of your deeds, you know that at the end of the day, your deeds can't take you away from him. That there's a confidence you can have. That he, the one who did it that time for me can still do it again now. There's a confidence that I want you to carry, even as we study the scriptures. So keep that in mind. Keep the fact that, look, the goodness of God leads to repentance. But one sign of true maturity is that you are confident before God. That you have an understanding that this is my father. He is Abba. I'm not distant. I'm not separate. I can come again. I might have made mistakes, but I can come back to him. I can run back. The story of the prodigal must rank high in your mind. That this is the disposition and default position of the father. Come back. I never stopped looking for you. I never stopped waiting. See me. Come back. Come back. Come back. You're closer. Come back. Don't stay far away. Verse 1. 1 John chapter 5 from verse 1. Are you there? 
Whew, I'll be as fast as I can. I'll be as fast as I can. Whoever believes that Jesus, I'm reading from the NKJV just so you know, and the title of this teaching is Godfidence. Not confidence, there's that. Let's take it a bit higher and more specific, more specific, Godfidence. All right, verse one. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone who loves him who begot also loves him who is begotten of him. Now, this is a, seems very technical. I know it's NKJV, so it might have all this language. But let's, let's address some things. Remember, the situation that they are facing here and the, the churches in Asia Minor that John is also writing to uh, at this time. And Asia Minor, by the way, consists mostly of Turkey, a modern-day Turkey, right? And maybe surrounding parts of Ephesus and all of that. So he's writing to these people there. And these people were facing a very specific kind of persecution, which was from false teachers. So John was trying to correct some of those excesses consistently. One of the, 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 the people we've mentioned are the Docetists, uh, the practice Docetism, who say Jesus didn't come in the, uh, in the flesh. Same thing with the Gnostics in that time, who said Jesus was such a superhuman being. He didn't come in flesh. He didn't he resurrect in flesh nothing he was so supreme he couldn't be attached to the things of the world you know that kind of thing so he was combating these doctrines that were plaguing the church at the time all right so what he's saying is whoever believes that jesus is the christ is born of god now what does it mean for someone to be the christ what does that mean the greek word being christos what does it mean for someone to be the christ I know many times we say Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If you're going to ask, what's his first, his first name? Jesus, obviously. What's his last name? Christ, obviously. And you'll be wrong. You will be very wrong. Can I ask you now, quickly, if you can do this, what was the surname? <laughs> what was the surname of Jesus Christ? Put it now in the chat section. Let's see. Let me test your knowledge. Don't Google it. Don't do nothing. Put it down. Let's see. I'll give you some time. And while we're doing that, open your Bibles to Acts chapter 10 from verse 38. Acts chapter 10 from verse 38. How are they doing in the comments? <laughs> okay, what was the answer? Okay, cool, cool, cool. All right, Acts chapter 10 from verse 38. So this is what it says. Focus, Acts chapter 10, verse 38. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. Right? For God was with him. I'm going to read another scripture, John chapter 7, from verse 40 to 43. Glory to Jesus. John chapter 7, from verse 40 to 43. This is what it says. Many of the people, therefore, when they heard this saying, said of a truth, this is the prophet. And mind you, they said the prophet. This is the prophet. Verse 41. Other says, this is the Christ. But some says, shall Christ come out of Galilee? 
verse 42. Had not the scripture said that Christ cometh of the seed of David and out of the town of Bethlehem where David was. So there was division among the people because of him. So literally, people were trying to discover, is this man, the way this man speaks, the way he talks, and, and this was just right after he had said, if any man thirsts, come unto me, drink, you know, he's telling them that he will give them, like, out of their belly shall flow rivers of living water. And people were investigating, is this the prophet? Because at the time, Moses did prophesy that there will be a prophet greater than he who would come. And the prophecies about Jesus, about the, the Messiah, the Christ, that he will come out of Bethlehem and from the seed of David, according to the flesh. So they were trying to investigate. This man is from Nazareth, but is he really, is this really the Christ? They were trying to use scriptures to find out. This tells me that Christ there is not a name. It's not a name. I know we say Jesus Christ. Literally, we should be saying Jesus the Christ. And Christ means anointed one. So from Acts chapter 10 that we saw, we see that the anointed one, right? Jesus is the anointed one. He was anointed by the spirit and by power. And he did all that he did. That was the mission of the Christ. The Christ would be anointed to be the Messiah of the world. Literally is what it means, right? He will be anointed. And the beautiful part of this is that as he is the Christ, we are Christians. So he is the anointed one. We are anointed ones as well. By his grace and mercy, we have been anointed by his spirit as well. And that's why many times when we read that scripture, we can see how God anointed Kenneth to go about doing work, good works by the power of the spirit. We can say that as well because now we are Christians. We are also anointed by the spirit to go about to do good, to do greater works than we ever could imagine. Praise the name of Jesus. Are you following? So if you're going to say the surname of Jesus, and rightly so, I think Dolapo got that in the chat section, it is Bar-Jesus, Bar-Joseph, I beg your pardon. So how to do it in the Jewish tradition is they put Bar and then hyphenate with the father's name, right? In some cultures in Nigeria, same thing, right? But you use your father's name, it's part, you hyphenate it, put it as part of your, your full name, right? Uh, so yeah, that's exactly what happened. So it's Jesus Bar-Joseph, um, who is the Christ. I hope that's clear. So the Christ, more or less, is, is an office and is also a title that our Lord Jesus stepped into to fulfill the work of salvation. Does that make sense? Very good. So, so John is saying, whoever believes that Jesus is the one, the one sent from God, the Christ, the anointed one, is truly born of God. But everyone, and everyone who loves him, who begot, also loves him who is begotten of him. So there are two ways to interpret this, right? And we're going to give you two ways. And I want to ask you what you think. The first way to interpret this is this. Is it that those, is it talking about those who love God must also love Jesus, who is the begotten of God? So he says, everyone who loves him, God, the father, uh, who begots, right? Who uh, begot, I don't know if there's any other English, um, also loves him who is begotten of him. That's Jesus. Could that be it? Or could it be an everyone who loves him, that is Jesus, um, also loves those who are begotten of him? That's the believer in Christ. So if you love Jesus, then you would also love the believer. What do you think this means? It's a very tricky one. Which one do you think it is? So do you think it's 
the one who loves God who begot, God the Father also will love the Son who is begotten, or the one who loves Jesus will love those who are also begotten of him. Uh, that's the believers as well. Because you see, when we read this chapter, it's talking a lot about loving God, loving people, loving God, loving people. What do you think? I think going contextually would help. So we'll go to verse 2. That should help us give some clarity. All right. And the truth is this. I know I say a lot that you should stay on a verse before you move. Stay on the verse. Stay till it sinks in. But sometimes, and the only time really that you should move from one verse is if you feel the answer is in the next. All right. So let's go to the next verse. Verse 2. It says, By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. So somehow it feels like this could be either of the two, really. And, and if you believe any of those, you're not wrong. Can we establish that, right? If you believe who he was talking about there was, you love, the, you love God who begot and the one who was begotten of him, who is Jesus Christ, you're not wrong, right? You're not wrong to say that. And also if you say that the one, if you love God, you also love those who are begotten of him. However, somehow I lean into, I used to lean into the second one, but more so I lean into the first because it says, whoever believes that Jesus Christ is born, um, is Christ is born of God and everyone who loves him, who begot, I believe that's still talking about God, the one who we are born of, also loves him who is begotten of him. That's Jesus Christ. So you can't take God the Father and leave out, leave out his son, Jesus. It's a full package where it says, you know, in chapter one, if we have fellowship with, with the Father, you also have fellowship with the son. So it could be that. It could also be what verse two is saying, that by this we know that we love the children of God. If we love God, we also love the children of God. But when we, when we love God and keep his commandments, I know, it, I know you're like, oh, why are we really focusing on this? But I think it's helpful. And I'm leaving this for you to decide what you think it is. But if you believe any of them, you're not necessarily wrong. And that's what, where we need to be in Bible study. The point of Bible study is not to tell you this is what it is. This is what I believe and it's correct. It's for you to understand what the verse is saying. See the elements that are in. And if you have options to choose from, for you to prayerfully look into it and make that decision based on very strong evidence. And look, this is why I think this is it. And, and it doesn't um, nullify or contra contradict the whole counsel of God in, in, in that topic. Do you understand what I'm saying? All right, praise the name of Jesus. Glory to God. So verse 2, it says, By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. So I'm seeing some, some kind of confidence here. He's saying, look, when you, there's a way you know that, you are, that, that we love the children of God. We know we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. There's, a, there's just that confidence that we're doing the right thing when we truly are loving God and keeping his commandments, right? And we establish that this confidence is usually in two parts. There is a confidence, to, <clears throat> there's a confidence that comes where you can stand in his presence, where we put faith in him, where we, where we receive his love. There's that confidence to stand before God and say, God, here I am, a child. And it's by right stand, it's by right standing because of what Jesus did for you. Just right standing. <clears throat> That's where the confidence comes from. But it's also a confidence to stand before him because we demonstrate the love that he has given to us. And, and I don't want to, <clears throat> a lot of the times we emphasize the first one. 
and a healthy biblical teaching on grace of, the grace of God is to merge these two together, is to bring these two to the light. There is a place of initial standing where by faith in Jesus Christ, there's no barrier. The middle wall of partition has been broken down. You have access to the Father. You can come to him boldly. There is that because of the work of Jesus. But there is a confidence that your works, your own works, inspire before the Lord. It, it, it's, it's something you can relate to, and, 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 and I hope you can relate to it. There are times where you know you've not been walking the right way, where you've disobeyed the commandments of God, where you've walked out of line and gone against your nature in Christ. You've done things that are inconsistent with that nature. How do you feel? What's that disposition you have before God? There's, there's some timidity. There are some traces of guilt and condemnation. Of course, you get to a place where you remind yourself, I am forgiven in Christ Jesus. God forgives me. Of course, after truly repenting. But when you consistently, and many of you, maybe this was you during this fasting season. And for all of you who, who fasted during this time, I say big thank you for honoring the Lord because it's good to consecrate yourself that way. And I'm sure you've seen the evidence. So maybe it was during this week. You just, this week, it was just good for you. You did not miss devotion. You, you did not give in to that weight or that easily besetting sin. You, you, you walked with God this period and you knew. So it, it does something to your confidence. When you, when you obey the commandments of God, it, it gives you confidence. It gives you confidence. There's no denying that. And I believe that's the two parts in this, where we can know that we are the children of God and we love the children of God because we love God and we keep his commandments. And verse 3 this is very good. I love verse 3 so much. It says, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. So the love, the true love of God, is that you actually keep his commandments. You cannot say you love God if you don't keep his commandments. Do you understand what I'm saying? They are, they are one and the same. If you say, I love God, and your lifestyle is not showing that you're keeping his commandments, it means you don't love God. And John has taken his time to establish that. So keeping his commandments, and some of you in your mind, you're like, ha, this 10 commandments again. Ten. Your mind should never really just go to 10 commandments because at the end of the day, we've summarized the 10 commandments. We've simplified it. If you look at the New Testament, if you want to summarize the New Testament in one word, aside revelation, you can also call it simplicity. You're moving from a place of complex activities where you sacrifice this lamp and do it and how many times and observe this and do that. And now the simplicity of it is put faith in Christ Jesus. You're coming from a place of ten commandments where it's honor your father and your mother so your days belong. You know, you shall have no other God before me. You will not take the name of the Lord in vain. You will observe the Sabbath and keep it holy. You, you will not steal. You will not kill. All of that. You see all these ten and you're like, man, keeping track of this is, is crazy. And then you move to the New Testament and it says, this is the law. Summarize. Loving God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul. Loving your neighbor as yourself. There can be no greater than these, Jesus said in his own words. So he's helped simplify that all the commandment of God is in this one thing. Imagine that, all that you've been called to do. And of course, there are branches to this love. Because of your love for God, you would evangelize. You would keep up devotion. You would fellowship with the, with the brethren. And because of your love for the brethren, you will do those things as well. It, it, it's all love at the end of the day. That's the commandment. And that's why he's saying his commandments are not burdensome. They are not. When you think of the commandments of God, they should delight you. David had the law, the raw law, literally. And he said, I delight in the laws of God. 
I delight in those commandments. But you have the reality and you have the tool to obey the commandments, which is the Holy Spirit. You have the agent of obedience, who is the Holy Spirit. So what, what's your excuse? It, it, literally, it's not burdensome. Not only has it been simplified for you, but you've also been empowered to obey the commandments of God. So it's not, it's not burdensome. What are the commandments of God? It's a call to love, right? It's nothing new. It's a call to love. Love God and love his people. Verse 4. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. I love that. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Whatever is born of God overcomes the world. It's powerful. I love that it says it's because at the end of the day, now he, it, he's starting to switch gears, gears, I beg your pardon, starting to switch gears, gears a little bit. And he's saying, whatever is born of God overcomes the world. No matter what happens, you will always overcome the world. You would have, there's a victory that overcomes the world. It's your faith in the Lord Jesus, your trust in him, your, 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 your confidence in him would always overcome the world. And you're going to see how it's going to lead into it in terms of, you know, standing against the, the, the things the world is presenting. You know, and we're going to go through that. I'm not going to spend too much time here. Verse 5. Who is he who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. He's getting specific. He's getting specific. Why is it important to believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Now, I, I, I wish I had the time to explain this, but we've established before now that calling Jesus the Son of God, and, and of course, the sonship is by incarnation and by resurrection. We've established that already. Romans chapter 1 from verse 3 to 4. But what I see also is that the times where he said, where Jesus spoke and said, my father and I are one, where he talked about his sonship in that way, the people sought to stone him to death. Why? They accused him of blasphemy. That was the charge they used to crucify him, that he was a blasphemer. So what about calling God your father is blasphemous? It's because when you call yourself the son of God, it literally puts you in the class, not just of human, puts you in the class of God. It puts you in the class of the Godhead. It puts you in the place of divinity. If your father, the one who created you, is the same as you, and in the case of Jesus, of course, Jesus is not a created being, but that the, your father is the same with you, a divine being who is not created is the same with you. What are that? It's it, 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 to the Jews, they interpret it as you're saying you are God. So, John here speaking is that look, the one who overcomes the world is the one who believes Jesus is the Son of God. It's powerful. It's literally saying the one who puts faith in Jesus and believes his sonship, believes his deity, the truth about his person and his divinity, is the one who overcomes the world, who overcomes the falsehood that the world brings. Verse 6, it says, This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. And not only by water, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who bears witness, because the Spirit is truth. So what he's trying to do now is establish how that truly Jesus is the Son of God. And he's saying that they are witnesses, the things that bear witness to the sonship of Jesus Christ. And some people have different beliefs about it. I'm just going to give you a few of them. Some people believe that the water speaks of our own baptism. 
right? When we are baptized in him, it speaks of Jesus and the blood speaks of when we receive communion, right? Um, I think Martin Luther and John Calvin once believed this uh, about this verse, uh, but it doesn't really add up with the, with the historical perspective that, that John gives. He says that Jesus came by water. So it was, it, it, and it was an activity that happened, right? It came at a point in history. Um, so in, in terms of being our own baptism, which is water and the blood of communion, it really doesn't add up. The second thing, which um, I think St. Augustine used to believe, he said that uh, the water and the blood were referring to um, what flowed from his, Jesus' side when the servant pierced him in John 19, uh, verse 34, where the servant pierced him and pierced his side, and the Bible says that immediately blood and water came out. And some people from this went further to say if blood and water came out of Jesus, blood and water are proof many times, not just of um, death, but that you're human. So some people believe that, oh, water and blood here just simply meant um, that he was human, right? Some people think that also that Jesus came by blood and water is, you know, he, it means that Jesus used to be into that show on Netflix, Blood and Water. Um, some people have weird ideas. I don't know why. Uh, but that's, that's not true. Uh, <laughs> I said this so seriously. Um, another op option is that some people say that the water referred to the virgin birth of Jesus, which is the, the waters of the womb, the waters of the womb, and, and the blood speak of his death. Um, now, you can see that one verse alone, and I'm sure you've read this, probably read this before. Maybe you were trying to do a fico, you went ahead of the class, you read this ahead, and you're like, hmm, what are blood? What is this? Um, it, you can see how that from one scripture, a lot of inter possible interpretations can come about. But sometimes when you have a case like this, you just take a deep breath, slow down, understand what is the aim of the writer. I want to believe that as he was writing this, he, he knew that his audience would understand what he was saying because of the way it's being written. It's, it, there's a context, there's a flow, right? There's a, there's a foundation. So when you read the scripture, you need to understand what is he trying to do? He's trying to say that there are elements that bear witness to Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And he says, you know, he said before that anyone who believes that Jesus is the Son of God has overcome the world because of their faith in him. So he's trying to say that, look, there are, are witnesses to his sonship. There are witnesses to his sonship. All right, and, and looking at this, I, I really want to believe that um, the, the, the water and blood here could be, really could be anything. But personally, when I look at it, I see that it really could be uh, and this is something that uh, one of the Asian uh, scholars, Christian scholars, uh, Tertullian, um, mentioned. I really believe that it could really talk about his baptism. You know, John the Baptist's baptism of Jesus. The water could be that, really, where there was an announcement. This is my beloved son. There was a witness for people to see, witness for people to hear. That day, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And then on the time where he was, when you talk about blood, you're talking about sacrifice, you're talking about death. And you, when you talk about his death on the cross, you know, when you talk about his death on the cross, when he laid down his life for humanity to save them from their sins, that was also a testament. And indeed, he was the only begotten son sent into the world to save the people from their sins. And not just by that, by his resurrection as well, you know. And 
And I believe that in that way, the Spirit of God bears witness as well in that equation, in the sense that the Spirit of holiness, you know, the Bible says in Romans 1, 4, that he was declared to be the Son of God by the Spirit of holiness who raised him from the dead. So I believe that as a baptism, at his crucifixion and his resurrection, there are witnesses testifying of his sonship, that he is indeed the Son of God and indeed is God himself. And of course, there's also an inner witness by the Spirit where we know that we are the sons of God. And even in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, it says, you know, you will be my witnesses after you receive the power of the Spirit. You shall, you know, it says that you shall receive power after the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you'll be witnesses. So the, the, the Holy Spirit confirms the witness in you and makes you a witness as well. So uh, this is really powerful. This is my personal view. Um, and you can, you can look at the options that I shared. You can look at it again and study yourself. But I think when you look at it, the aim is to prove the sonship of Jesus, to, to show the witnesses that testify to him. All right. I hope that's clear. I'm sorry I'm rushing, but we have so much to cover. Verse 7. It says, For there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. So this scripture is actually very interesting. And many people might not know this, but this portion of scripture is actually not in some of the earliest Greek manuscripts. You will not see this verse at all, anywhere. However, in about uh, three Latin manuscripts, you would see this verse, the Latin, not the Greek. So it was contended a lot about it. Erasmus, who was one of the earliest biblical scholars in the first century, um, was, was translating and translating this uh, manuscript. And, you know, people contradicted it and said, you know, why didn't you include this verse? You know, people challenged him um, and asked him why. And, and I'm saying this carefully so you don't think that the Bible has errors. It does not. This is, this is in terms of copying. You know, so people challenged him, why is it not in this scripture? Why is it not there? And he told them, if you can find any manuscript that has this verse, then I'll include it. And they did find a manuscript, an early manuscript in the Latin, Latin Vulgate, that had this. And so it was included in some of the Greek uh, manuscripts. Um, just for you to research, the three manuscripts are called Codex uh, Montforti, which Erasmus himself uh, was, was in charge of, then Codex. Uh, Guelfeb by Thanos, <laughs> which was written in the 17th century, that's the 1600s, and the Codex Ravianos. It sounds like Harry Potter spells, I know, uh, but Codex Ravianos, okay, yeah, but uh, it, that was in the 1514. So these are the manuscripts that have this verse, and of course, the NKJV, which was also, which was, you know, uh, an extract from some of the early Greek manuscripts and the Latin Vulgate, um, has this verse in it. So, uh, but is it worth looking into? Absolutely. I think it also has a, it carries a very powerful message here. All right, so look at this. It says, for there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. Is it clear what is being talked about? I think it's very obvious, right? Compared to the blood, water, and spirit, which was a bit mysterious, this is a bit clearer. First of all, what are they bearing witness to? It's still the sonship. But look at this. They bear witness. The Father, who is God the Father? The Word. Do we know anyone who is the Word? And mind you, who is the person writing this book? John. It's John. Who started his first book by saying, in the beginning was the Word? Remember that. If it was Peter, I don't think he would use the Father, the Word here. He would go straight to the point. 
right? We say the Father, the Christ, most likely. But John started by saying in the beginning was the Word, and we see in verse 14 of chapter 1, John, that the Word became flesh and talks about the Lord Jesus. So the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And he says these three, in case you missed it, these three are actually one. So he's saying the Godhead bears witness to this. Apart from some of the elements and the, and, the, and the events that took place that testify of his sonship, the Godhead testifies of it because in him dwelt the fullness of the Godhead bodily, as, as Colossians talks about. So there is confirmation that indeed he is the Son of God. Verse 8. And there are three that bear witness on earth, the spirit, the water, and the blood. And these three agree as one. And personally, I honestly think that um, this is a repetition of what he said in verse 6. Um, it does flow from verse 6 in what he was said about the ones that bear witness. So in heaven is the Godhead. On earth, these events of the baptism, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus bear witness. I, is that clear? I hope that's clear. Verse 9. If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For this is the witness of God, which he has what? Testified of his son. Verse 10. And he who believes, and you're going to see the witness of God. You're going to see it in verse 11, but let's go quickly. Verse 10. He who believes in the son of God has the witness in himself. He who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed the testimony that God has given of his son. Are you following? Are you guys following? Yes. I hope so. So he's saying he who believes in the son of God has a witness in himself. There's a witness in you when you believe in Jesus. There's, there's something that screams loudly you know, of your place in him and that you're a child of God. But the one who doesn't believe makes God a liar and, and, and makes him sound like he doesn't have a son. The one who doesn't believe in God, you know, makes it sound like truly Jesus is not the son of God. Truly Jesus is not the Christ. He's not the anointed one of God. But look at verse 11. And this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his son. I love this so much. He's explaining what, what, what the witness is, that God has given eternal life. This is what he speaks about his son, Jesus. He's given eternal life, but only through his son. And that takes us to the scripture in John 14, verse 6, that says, when Jesus speaks, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, I am the life. It's very powerful. I'm going to read a scripture very soon. Let's go to verse 12. I hope it's clear so far. This is very simple. God has given us eternal life, and that life is through his son, Jesus, which I hope you believe. Verse 12. He who has the son has life. Glory to God. I didn't hear your hallelujah. Oh, do you have the son? Oh, then you have life. Glory to Jesus. And he who does not have the son of God does not have life. It's so simple and also very scary, you know, to think that there are people without the Son of God. And eternal life is not just existing 
on that plane of existence away from God. That's not just what eternal life is. It's not just whether it's heaven or hell. Eternal life is not just a destination. Eternal life is a possession, right? It's something that you have. Because I said, whoever has the Son of God has this life. It's not just about going to heaven. It's about the life force that runs within your veins. Glory to Jesus. I'm going to read two scriptures. John chapter 7 from verse 37 to 39. It's only fitting that we read from John's Gospels, right? To validate what he's saying. John chapter 7. Just so you know, this book, the book of... Many people don't know this. The, the book of John, the, John's gospel, the Gospels according to John, and this book of 1 John were written around the same time. And a couple of years after, he writes Second John. So they're written. This was the book of John was written post-resurrection, um, and around I think 64 AD, if I'm not mistaken, around the same time. So um, Paul, that's why he can stand and say, "In the beginning was the Word." Who starts like that? You know, he he knew. That's someone who talks from a place of revelation. John chapter seven, from verse thirty-seven to thirty-nine. Are you ready? It says, in the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried. He cried powerful way uh, which he spoke, saying, if any man thirst, let him come to me and drink. And I'm sure some guys were like, oh, okay, I, I believe you, bro. And we've seen you feed the multitudes. Some people were carrying their water bottles. Maybe they were trying to get, you know, maybe he was the first water dispenser ever. Maybe he was just, they were trying to, I mean, he, what could he not do? The guy who turned... Uh, who, who multiplied bread and fish. But verse 38, he now clarifies. He that believes on me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. Eh? Wait, what? Huh. Okay, this is not just water. There's something else. The one who believes out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. Of course, the ultimate source of this living water is from Christ himself. But it's, this talks about the abundance. I know some people debate this, that whose belly is it talking about? Is it Jesus' belly that will flow rivers of living water? Absolutely. But with the rivers of water flowing yours as well? Yes. And this talks of abundance. Flowing, flowing, shall flow rivers of living water. Verse 39, but this speak he of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive. For the Holy Ghost was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So he's saying, look, I'm going to give you a life source. Living waters is figurative of the life force of the Holy Spirit, eternal life that Jesus will give to anyone who is willing to take. Glory to Jesus. In John chapter 17, let's go 10 chapters ahead. John chapter 17 from verse 2 to 3. Powerful, powerful stuff. Oh, this one is going to give you... I'm going to give you something to think about. Are you there? John 17 from verse 2. This is what it says. It says, As thou has given him power over all flesh, and he's talking about himself, you know, um, that he should give eternal life. Can you see it? That he, that's Jesus Christ, should give eternal life to as many as thou has given him. So as many as will be called by the name of Jesus, as many as would put faith, Jesus will give that person eternal life. And then he goes to explain in verse 3 what eternal life is. 
And this is life eternal. This is eternal life. That they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This is eternal life. It's knowing God and knowing his son. And this is what John has been talking about in terms of having fellowship with the father and having fellowship with the son. This is powerful. You can't just take, and I believe this was a challenge to the Jews. That look, you, you talk about Yahweh, you talk about Jehovah, but you cannot honor Yahweh without honoring his son, the Messiah. You've talked about him, you talk about him greatly so, rightly so, you should. But now his son has been revealed. The one that you've been prepared about, you know, you've been prepared for. In all the prophets, in all the law. We told you he was coming, we told you he was coming, he's here now. Where's your honor for him? Because you cannot get that eternal life you seek without believing in the Son as well. Are you seeing what I'm saying? Eternal life is so critical that the Father and Son are honored and believed in and known. There is no fellowship with the Father without the Son. And that's why Jesus rightly said, I am the way, the way, the way. I am the truth, the real way, the true way. And I'm the life. I'm the source of life. Anyone who comes to the Father must first come through me. If you want to have access to the Father now, it's only through me. It's always been through me. Praise the name of Jesus. This is powerful. So he said in verse 12, if you have the Son, you have life because he gives life. He doesn't slide you. You believe it, you have eternal life. You don't feel it. You don't feel eternal life. (laughs) You don't feel it. You don't look it. It's there. If the Spirit of God has been deposited in you, it's there. Read Ephesians chapter 1. Let's go there. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 13 is worth the mention. Ephesians 1, 13 to 14. I'm going to read it as quickly as I can. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. This is such a hallowed scripture. Oh, glory to God. Verse 13. Are you there? Ephesians 1. In him you also trusted. You trusted God. After you heard the word of truth, you heard the gospel, you believed in Jesus. The gospel of your salvation. That's what the word of truth is. In whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. (laughs) You were sealed. You were stamped as God's possession. Who is the guarantee, the down payment, as is also said, The down payment. The reason why you can get that car is because you made a down payment. Do you understand? And and that's that's proof. And when you pay a down payment to the bank, you're telling the bank that, look, this is proof that more is to come. This is just a taste of what is to come. And so he is the guarantee. He is the guarantee for our inheritance. Until the redemption of the purchased possession, we are the purchased possession of God, hallelujah, until the purchased possession is redeemed to the, pla- to the praise of his glory. Glory to God. Hallelujah. So that's what he's talking about, that the Holy Spirit is our seal. You have, the, you have eternal life if you, believe, if you believe the gospel of salvation. If you believe the word of truth, you put faith in Jesus, you have eternal life if you have the Spirit of God. Hallelujah. Glory to, God. glory to Jesus. The river of living water was activated in your life when the Spirit stepped in. Verse 13, 
Glory to Jesus. He says, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may believe, you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. I have so much to unpack here. But he's telling you now, at least you see his audience here. Who is, who is his audience? Who is he talking to? He's talking to believers. He's saying, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. So if you are a believer, you believe in the name, the authority of the Son of God. I'm writing these things to you. He's writing this for two reasons and all that he's, going to, he's been writing and he's still going to write. He's writing two things. The first thing is to remind them that they, what, that they have eternal life. To remind them. I, I find it so important. When you're reminded that you have eternal life, that you have a life that transcends this life, what it does to you subconsciously and consciously, it, 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 it loses your hold to this world. So even like Paul, who explains the calamities he's faced in 2 Corinthians 11, and he was beaten, and he was stoned, and he was beaten five times, he was beaten 39 lashes five times, he was beaten by rods three times, he was shipwrecked, he was hungry, he was, he was stranded, he was displaced. He went through all these things everywhere he possibly could set his foot on. But because he knew he had eternal life, what is this life I'm holding on to? Because Jesus said, the one who loses his life for my sake will find it. Because there is a, there's a better life ahead. There's a greater resurrection. There's a greater inheritance. Look, he's telling you that no matter what you accomplish and achieve here, I want to remind you, you have eternal life. It goes beyond now. It's a life that never ends. It's a life that takes you into a beautiful, deep, intimate, perfect fellowship with the Father. A perfect fellowship where, where we have the right words to speak now, where we have the right expression to, to express our love and gratitude to the Lord, where we have the right energy to do it, where we are, we are strong and we never grow weary. A time where there's no sorrow, where there's no pain, there's no persecution. That is the time He's reminding us of. So that when we remember that life, that we that has started now, by the way, that life that will transcend to eternity. He wants you to lose your hold on this present life, this present world. And that's why he talks a lot about this world. The one who believes in the Son of God has overcome the world, like he said. Nothing the world will throw to you that you cannot take. But it's important. It means that in our teachings as well, we need to remind you of eternal life. And, verse, and the next thing he wants to pass across here, which is very powerful, is that they what? Continue in their faith. If you look at the second part, it says that you may continue to believe. If you already have eternal life, why is John admonishing you to still believe? And, and this is something that, like, like, why is it emphasized? You know, this is something that I want to talk about because there's just this idea of uh, as many people put it, the, the phrase of that year, once saved, always saved, you know. If you're saved once, you're always saved. That's the end of the story. But this is what I really believe. This is really what I believe about the subject matter. And I don't have time to dive into it. I will dive into it at Immerse Bible Camp. Hopefully you have registered and you'll be part of that. But I'll just give you a snippet and I'll say this, that... There's a reason why the whole book of Hebrews was dedicated to literally ignite and sustain faith of the hearers. First of all, to, to 
incite faith from those who are probably Hebrews and want to understand who the person of Jesus is, but to also encourage them to continue in the faith. I'm going to read a scripture to you, Hebrews chapter 10 from verse 22 to 23. I'm going to read it very quickly. Hebrews chapter 10 from verse 22 to 23. You see that the book of Hebrews is replete with warnings. It says, don't be like those children of, the, of, of Israel in the wilderness who drew back. It says, I have confidence that you're not of those who draw back onto perdition. So there are warnings, there are warnings, and then there's assurance. There's warnings, there's warnings, and there's assurance. Because that's God's method of protecting his sheep. God's method of protecting you and preserving the saints is that you are warned, you are instructed, you are corrected, so that you can continue to put faith in the Lord Jesus. Putting faith in Jesus is not a one-off. It's a lifetime. Faith is not just, I put faith, boom, that's it, I'm done. I can relax. I've made it. I made the cut. Faith is, is it, true faith in Jesus is, is literally determined and proven by a lifetime sequence of faith. Do you understand what I mean? So look at this, Hebrews chapter 10, from verse 22 to 23. It says, let us draw near with a true heart. And I love this. You have access to the Father. There's some confidence there. So you can draw near. Glory to God. You can draw near. It says, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Full assurance. Faith in itself is assurance. But it says in full assurance of faith. I love the terminology there. It says, come with a true heart with full assurance of faith. Having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. The, the, the phrase evil conscience here talks about things that could cause you to doubt. It could be condemnation, guilt. Purge yourself of these things. Come with a true heart in full assurance of faith. And our bodies washed with pure water. Verse 23. Let us hold fast. Hold fast. Hold fast. Hold fast the profession of our faith. Without wavering. Hold fast. He's encouraging you. You've believed, but continue to believe. Don't waver. Don't give room for doubt. You believe that Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Christ. He is the Savior of your sins. Believe in it. Hold on to it. Hold fast. There is a jealousy with which you would hold it. It's like, have you, have you bought something so expensive for yourself? Or maybe someone bought it for you. But I think even more important, you, you bought it for yourself because you know how much it costs. You spent that money. There's a way you will carry that thing. Maybe it's the newest iPhone, for example, or maybe it's, it's a piece of you know, jewelry or, or whatever. You, there's a way you will carry it. There's a jealousy. Not everyone, you won't just give everyone to hold it. You won't. There's a jealousy with which you guard it. And that's the thing. When you hold fast to something, it's something you cling on for dear life. It's, it's not an optional thing. It's like what you do with a parachute. If you jump out of a plane without the parachute, you are done. You are gone, except, you know, in his mercy, he gives his angels charge over you. Amen. But that parachutes, what you will hold on to it for dear life. Because without it, you won't have life. You, do you understand? That's what faith looks like. You hold on to it. Hold fast the profession of your faith without wavering. For he is faithful, that promise. The one who gave you eternal life is faithful to give you the full inheritance of all that he's promised. Glory to God. This is powerful. John is writing to remind these guys and to encourage them to continue in their faith. The faith, the life of faith of the believer is not a one-off 
thing or one of I believe that's the end. It says the one who endures till the end shall be saved. I'm going to read another scripture to you in Hebrews chapter 10, uh, the last verse actually. Let's go there quickly. Thank you, Jesus. Hebrews 10, verse 30. Uh, should I start from 39? Uh, all right, from verse 36. Oh, verse 35, sorry. <laughs> verse 35, Hebrews 10, 35. I'm going to read till the last verse. This is what it says. It says, Therefore do not cast away your confidence. I love that. Which has great reward. So your confidence in the Lord does have great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. Look at that. You have need for what? Endurance. To stay. So that after you've done the will of God, you actually still receive the promise. Look at the language there. Endurance, staying, sustenance, persevering. This is the language of the believer. It's not one-off. It's not a careless life. It's a conscious decision to stay, to endure. Verse 37, for yet a little while, and he who is coming will come, and he will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith, but if anyone draws back. So the just have life by faith. That's another way the scripture is put. The just live, now the just shall live by faith. They only have life by faith. And if anyone draws back, look at the warning there. If anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Then he comes with some confidence. The writer of Hebrews, he says, but we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. Glory to God. So when he says to those who believe to the saving, we believe until the soul is saved. Until that, that redemption of our soul, the redemption of the purchased possession is done, there is a belief that endures till that moment. I hope this is clear. This is true faith. You hold fast to it, and in turn, it holds fast to you. It keeps you and preserves you. Glory to God. Verse 14. Now we're getting somewhere interesting. It says, now this is the confidence that we have in him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. He hears us. This is beautiful. I want to read Hebrews chapter 4 before we, we expound this verse. Hebrews 4 from verse 14 to 16. Open your Bibles. I hope you're not tired of opening them yet. Hebrews chapter 4 from verse 14 to 16. Glory to Jesus. Oh, thank you, Father. This is what it says. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession, not your job. That's not the profession he's talking about. The profession, what you profess, what you say, confessions of your faith, right? We've seen that we have a high priest. We have a great high priest. Let's hold fast our profession. Verse 15, for we have not a high priest which cannot be touched, with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Verse 16, let us therefore, the one who has endured the things we've endured and gone through the temptations yet without sin, let us therefore as a result come boldly, come with some confidence unto his throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. 
And this is and how you obtain grace and mercy in time of need is through prayer, through communicating with this person who has asked you to come boldly. That is the disposition of the believer, to come boldly. And this is what I want to I challenge you, and this is where we're going deeper into this Godfidence that we have. See, there, there's an approach to prayer a lot of believers have that they don't realize is toxic. It's the kind where it's a, it's a gamble. This prayer is just a gamble. Let me just see what happens. Let me just see. Hopefully it's something. That should never be the believer. There is a confidence, and I think this directly influences the charismatic ministry of any believer. If you believe that God's will is to heal people, if you believe that it's God's will to provide and to protect and to deliver and to save, there are some things you don't need to even think about. There's no debate about it. If God, if this is established in Scripture time and time again, that this is the will of God, for example, healing of, of someone, the deliverance of someone from captivity, then by all means, when you open your mouth to pray, you must carry that confidence. There's a way you speak and there's a way you pray that commands confidence. You know, just recently, um, just recently, I was believing with someone for a particular thing, right? Believing with a particular family. Um, and this is something they've been waiting for. They've been waiting for their daughter to have, uh, you know, have a visa to get into school and it's been delaying. Right, so I went to visit them, talked to them, very nice, beautiful Indian family, go to visit them, talk to them, and they mentioned this. And, you know, the, the concern on their face was, ha, we've tried everything, we've done everything, we don't know what's happening, it's just delaying all the while. And, you know, yeah, and in my mind, I'm like, for this matter, I really believe that this is a hindrance. In fact, the Lord told me in that moment that there's someone sitting there who is causing this. I don't know whether it's intentional or not, but there's someone who's directly causing the delay. And that person needed to be moved for that to happen. So I just spoke to them. There was a confidence, and I knew God was going to do this. I knew it was in his will that people do make progress and you know, for her to, do, to move and enter into school. And so I just prayed. And there was a, there was a way we, we prayed. I asked them, do you believe that God can make this happen? And as we pray right now, things are happening over there. In the policies, in that, in that institution, things are being made possible for that to happen. Ideally, this thing should have come out within a few days, and now it was almost three weeks. So something was up. And we're just saying, in the name of Jesus, anyone who is causing this delay, who is positioned in this place, in the name of Jesus, move out of the equation. That was literally how the prayer was. It was not the most eloquent prayer point, but it was with some confidence. And I, I, and I prayed that prayer and followed up like I believed that thing was going to happen. I said, in five days, this should be resolved. And exactly as I said, in five days, maybe five and a half, it was resolved. Literally, got the visa, just traveled. Just like that. The, see, when, when we pray many times, we, we, we show our lack of confidence with our lack of follow-up. Are you following what I'm saying? Sometimes we pray for certain things and we don't check. We just say, God, I leave it to you. Whatever you do, let it be. That's not how you win. That's not how to have an effective prayer life. It cannot work that way. If you truly believe what you have prayed about, you stay. You stay on it till you see what you have prayed about. You stay. How far? What's up? Has any difference? 
It should be gone by now. Check, check, check. It should be gone. I was delaying. God, what is this? And then in that moment, God can speak to you and tell you, oh, it's, a, it's an act of wisdom. You need to do this, do that. Or there's a hindrance. There's some demonic activity. And then you, boom, you attack it. Is it gone now? It has to be gone. Why is it waiting? What's going on? You check it. The problem is not God. The problem is not your faith. The problem is something else in that situation. But it should happen. There's a confidence. No matter how far and how, how much you've prayed about a certain thing, and I understand there is a lot of disappointment to this. There is. Sometimes you pray and pray and you're not seeing results. There's a better way to pray, which is what I'm showing you. It's a, it's a confidence way. That the next time, even if maybe you, you felt like you've been burnt or maybe you felt like God had disappointed you, and truly he hasn't. Sometimes there's just a lot of things that are beyond our power. For example, uh, one way I, I believe a lot of us feel we've been disappointed is because we've not discerned the answers to our prayers. I'll explain. Imagine Paul was not sensitive and he had a thorn in his flesh. Sorry, this place is getting a bit hot. He had a thorn in his flesh. All right. A, a messenger of Satan that was sent to buffer, buffet him. He's explained it. He was going through agony. The previous chapter, he has told about all the things he had experienced. And then he goes to God three times. God, take away this thorn in my flesh. Take away this thorn in my flesh. Take away this thorn. Oh, God, please, please. Fasted, prayed, fasted, prayed. Ah, kabast. And what was the response of Jesus? I don't necessarily believe it was an audible voice. My son, 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 son. Don't fear, 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 fear. For I, 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 I will give you grace, grace. Grace is sufficient, sufficient, sufficient. That's not how it happened. I believe that the Lord replied his answer and of course the, the lord does speak to us not necessarily in an audible voice but reminded paul that god's grace was sufficient for him in that moment and thank god paul was able to discern that the answer in that moment was not to take away the thorns in the flesh because the persecutions will not go the troubles will not go if you are going to stand godly do you understand there are things that will still stand if you're going to stand you know for jesus in this world of contradiction of darkness and you want to stand as a light, you'll be opposed, you'll be persecuted, you'll be dragged. So you cannot pray it away. Rather, the answer for that prayer is the grace to stand, the grace to endure, the grace to persevere, that even when you are weak, you are strong because of the Lord. Do you understand? So many times we get disappointed because we don't realize that God has probably already answered and you've just not realized it. Maybe it's a no, and he sent people to let you know that that venture is a no. Maybe in his mercy and his kindness, and this happens, the thing doesn't pull through several times. I'm not saying that's always the case. But that thing you've always wanted is not pulling through somehow, some way. And you're not still at peace about it. Sometimes the Lord in his mercy is giving you his answer. But if you've established there that what you're praying for, and look at this, it says if you ask anything, it's a blank check, but that blank check immediately is shrunk into a check that is filled up. Literally. When he says, according to his will, it gives you some direction. It's James 4 that says, you ask and you do not receive because you ask to consume it upon your lusts. So sometimes you pray and you ask, but you don't get what you've prayed for because you're going, you're, it's now according to your own will. You want to get things according to your will. You want to go to um, Germany by your own will. And it's not bad, honestly. It's, it's, it's okay to pursue your academic career and go for it and, and, and go to that country and do this. But sometimes we are running according to our own will. 
What I'm trying to let you know is if, it's, if anything you, you've discerned, this is the will of God in this situation and you pray about it, that thing will happen. It must happen. Do you understand the contract, the, the, the terms and conditions here? If you ask anything and it's according to my will and you come with confidence, you have a confidence when you ask this, you have a faith when you ask this, it will be done. It will be done. Look at verse 15. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked for. Look, look at the way it's phrased. So he's telling that God not just hears us. It's good if he hears you, right? It's good. He tells us he's not deaf, he's not distant, he can hear. But he says, if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we also can confidently know that we receive, that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. Look at that. That you've prayed it, it's his, it's his will to, to bring life, to bring prosperity. It's his will to, 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 to set people free. It's his will to help you be productive like he helped Peter to be productive in his business. You pray about it and you stand confidently. God, you who promised me eternal life, you who have given me an assurance by your spirit, I stand in this confidence. Lord, in the name of Jesus, this person is healed. Lord, in the name of Jesus, this business grows. And I'll see it happen. I'll see the right strategies being implemented. I'll see the, the divine supernatural favor of the Lord. I'll see it revealed in this business. In the name of Jesus, I see this prosper. I see this person well. I see this oppression removed. As you are doing this and you stand with confidence, the next best thing to do is to follow up. Is to monitor. It's to observe. If you truly believe what you have asked for, don't stop at just the prayer. Go a step further. Ask, how is your leg? Check it. Oh, it's still there. Let's pray again. There's a confidence I have. God promised it will happen. There's nothing else. <laughs> Do you understand? Nothing else. If he said it, it will happen. If it is will, it will happen. And you've asked about it, it will happen. Do you understand? This is powerful. There is a confidence, there is a boldness that God actually hears you. Yes, he sees you, Elrohi, but he also hears you. He hears your prayers, he hears your thoughts. And your prayers might not be put together. They might not be a well-phrased, eloquent prayer. It could be from the depth of your heart, you know, accompanied with cries and tears. But he hears it all. He heard Hannah when she prayed. He heard her, even though she was not audible. And she got what she asked for. It's, a, it's such a gracious God. Such a gracious God. And I want you to put this to practice. After this teaching, I want you to stay in your room. That thing that you've been waiting for, you've been praying about. The first thing you do, discern that it is the will of God. That's the first thing. If that's the only condition, then discern. How do you discern? First, with scriptures. Second, by the promptings of the Holy Spirit. And sometimes with the peace that God gives, the passions and the inclinations of the peace that you receive, God speaks that way. So you discern my scriptures. Does God want me to do this according to scriptures or have this according to scriptures? If yes, that's a check. Holy Spirit, is this your will? Is this what you want? In fact, if that's a check, you know, hardly would you ever have um, uh, a differing opinion when the Spirit speaks, except it's a case like Paul. Who knew that the will of the Lord was to preach and spread the gospel? But part time, the Spirit said, oh, no, don't go to that place yet. Go to Macedonia instead. 
No, no, don't go there. Go to this place instead. Do you understand? Check with the Holy Spirit. If the Holy Spirit is good, check. He does speak to you. And then you check again. Am I at peace? Is there a passion to pursue this thing? Is there a passion to see that person healed? Is there a passion to see this thing succeed? And if yes, pray. In the name of Jesus, you go. Father, I stand in this confidence that nothing I ask will be unheard. And that everything I ask that is according to your will is done. I have the petitions I've asked for. In the name of Jesus. This, and look, it's as simple. Do you, many of us underestimate, I wish I had the time to talk about prayer. Many of us underestimate the power of prayer. Your prayer here in whatever country you are in can affect, literally affect the life of someone somewhere else. Literally, if you understood the power of prayer, you will not take it lightly. That you can pray for your, your parents in just the span of 10 seconds and that prayer has saved their lives from that accident that happened. Prayer is powerful. Ah, if you understand the power of prayer, you will, you will be an intercessor. You will intercede and you will know it will happen. There's a confidence. Your charismatic life depends on this. It depends on this. If you want to see more miracles, this is the stance. In the name of Jesus, oh, there's a confidence. You hear me, God, in the name of Jesus. That's how Jesus spoke. He said, I, I, I'm, I'm thanking you, God, so that these people can hear me. And then he brought Lazarus back to, to life. That's all he did. That's all he did. Let that be your disposition. A confidence. A confidence in God that cannot be shaken. No matter how many times it feels like you've been disappointed or burnt, this time is a new time. It's another time to get it done in the place of prayer. That's your disposition. The believer, if, if there's anything that marks the life of a believer, is, is perseverance. Not just, and, and yes, perseverance of your faith. That yes, we've asked, look at Paul who asked, and the Bible doesn't tell us how long he asked for. He said, yeah, God, three times. I don't believe it's God, take it away. Ah, nothing, take it away. I feel it was, was a, a strenuous, emotional, trying time of praying something consecutively, the same thing, asking for help in desperation. But he didn't stop. He kept praying till there was something that happened. Till the Lord spoke and said, look, Baba, this thing is not going to go. Paulo, you will stay in this thing, but you'll be stronger for it. It will bring humility in your life, but it also bring patience and endurance and perfect all that is lacking in your life. Do you understand? That's your disposition. Perseverance. There's a confidence. God has said it. I believe it. It will happen. Simple. No questions asked. Glory to Jesus. Verse 16. Verse 16. If anyone sees his brother sinning a sin which does not lead to death, he will ask and he will give him life for those who commit sin not leading to death. There is sin leading to death. I do not say that he should pray about that. Now, this, <laughs> this has been tagged by one of the, I don't know if it was Spurgeon or one of the um, early Bible scholars, that tagged this one of the most difficult verses in scripture, right? Um, not just in the New Testament, not just in the book of John, first John, but in the whole New Testament. Because it's a question of what is he talking about? A sin that leads to death. If you see someone that, that sins a sin that does not lead to death, you know, pray for him that they will receive life. But if there's a sin that leads to death, don't pray about that. That's crazy. He's saying. There's some things you should pray about, even with the brothers. Even as much as you love your brothers, some things you should pray about. 
And in this type of verse, you go from what is known to what is unknown. <laughs> That's the only way you can decipher this verse. All right, and I'm going to just do a little um, exposition on this so that we can understand. So when it talks about a sin that leads to death, um, in the New Testament, there are a couple of actions that people did that literally led to their death. One I recall is Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5, where not because they didn't sell all their property, but they lied about what they sold. Um, there was a direct lie, and, and Peter executed judgment on them, and in that moment, they died. Another time uh, that I see this happen is in, in 1 Corinthians 11, in terms of the communion, where he says some of you have abused the communion, you are taking it unworthily, and because of that, many people have grown ill and have died. Right? So they, 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 they messed up the, the concept of communion, not just with the eating, but in the way they did communion. Communion was beyond the bread and the wine. It was the interaction with the body of Christ. And so because of that, many of them died. And if you notice, these two deaths are linked to how you, you know, take the body of Christ, how you are concerned with the welfare of the body of Christ. When I look at it, in whatever form it is, it, it talks about your interaction with the rest of the body and your welfare for the body of Christ, all right? But when John talks about this, he doesn't specify, he doesn't tell us what the sin unto death is. I have some speculations, however. The first thing that comes to my mind is false teaching, all right? Because consistently, it's warning against false teachers. Other books of the Bible tell us that these false teachers will, will get the judgment they deserve, they came into the church to pervert the church, to, to attack the body of Christ, the, the, the unity of the body of Christ. And God does not joke with that. He does not joke with unity in the body of Christ as we've already established. So false teaching could be that sin. When it's unrepentant, that kind of false teaching uh, could be a sin that leads to death. So if someone is in, in, in false teaching deeply, you don't even pray about that person. You, don't, you leave them and you, you, and you stand against them with the truth. If they're willing to repent, fine. If they're not, you leave, you leave them. Do you understand? That could be it. Another thing that comes to mind is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. You know, where Jesus says, if you, if you blaspheme against the Son, uh, you will be forgiven. But against the Holy Spirit, you will not be forgiven. This directly ties. And by the way, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is not just saying... Um, putting an, you know, the F word beside the Holy Spirit. It's, it's a part of it. It's beyond that, right? Um, it's more about intentionally rising in unbelief to attribute the works of Jesus to the works of the enemy, to directly not put faith in Jesus and to directly speak against it. So, in the time where this was used, the blasphemy of the Spirit was a time where, you know, the people in that time were talking against Jesus and saying that he was doing the works he did because he's a prince of demons. He's Beelzebub. He is not doing it by the power of God. He's doing it, not doing it by the power of the Spirit or the power of God. He's doing it by demonic activity. And that's when Jesus still said, you know, that, look, you know, a house divided against itself cannot stand. But the point is this. They were attributing his works, the works of the Holy Spirit, to demonic activity. Consciously, they knew, of course, that if you know you were going to cast out the devil, you had a power different from 
from, from the devil's power. So they knew he was operating with another power. They intentionally wanted to deceive many. And that's why I still believe that it's tied with false teaching. That with, with the level of unbelief, intentional unbelief, you're also trying to deceive the masses. It's a willful decision to not put faith in Jesus and to pervert his truth. Do you understand what I'm saying? So these two, at the end of the day, are not too different from each other, false teaching and unbelief. Um, aside this, I, I really cannot see any other thing that would point to the sin that leads on to death. Right? The one that disturbs the peace and the unity of the, of, of the body of Christ, which these two do. False teaching um, and unbelief and blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, they, they cause that in the body of Christ. You know, aside that, I really don't... I really don't see anything. Our disposition when we see someone sin is still what Galatians, uh, is it Galatians? Yes, Galatians 6.1 recommends. And if you see one who is overtaken with the fault, those who are more spiritual should restore such a person back to the faith. Restore them. So our first response is restoration. But when you see someone who is actively living a life that leads to death, that does not lead to eternal life, Someone who is willfully choosing not to believe in the Son of God who brings life, but actively antagonizing him, perverting his truth, that person literally lives in death. They're not living in life. So I believe that is a sin that leads to death. This is my personal opinion. At the end of the day, I'm not teaching dogma. I'm not saying swallow it because I've, I've dropped it in your mouth. <laughs> no. I'm saying this for you to consider, but this is what I believe. Anything that that does not lead to faith in Jesus Christ, who gives eternal life, is a sin that leads unto death. And in this context, anything that disturbs the peace and the unity of the body of Christ, whether it's through blasphemy of the spirit or false teaching, uh, I think that contributes to it. And it's not too far-fetched because this whole series has been an attack, uh, uh, more or less a defense against false teaching as well. Uh, and also to eliminate any form of unbelief in the Son of God. I hope that makes sense. I hope that makes sense. I know it takes some time for that to sink in, but just think about it. Verse 17. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is sin not leading to death. So there is unrighteousness, which is sin. There are acts of unrighteousness which people do that does not lead to death, right? It could be stealing. Um, it could be some other things, lusting, which, yeah, at the end of the day, doesn't lead to death. But... I think what characterizes a sin that leads to death is the one that does away with eternal life, that nullifies the place of eternal life, which happens through faith in Jesus, you know, that a person intentionally does. Whether it's through their unbelief and their perversion and false teaching, uh, I believe that's the sin that leads unto death. All right. Um, verse 18, we know that whoever is born of God does not sin, but he who has been born of God keeps himself, and the wicked one does not touch him. I love this scripture. I love this verse so much. It says, whoever is born of God does not sin. And we've, we've established that. It said, whoever is born of the seed of God does not make a habitual practice of sinning. You don't willfully say, oh, good morning, Lord. Huh? What do I do in my day? This day, I want to just spend it with women, with strange women. I want to drink alcohol. This is the life of the believer. You, you cannot do that. The one who is born of God, your conscience will scratch you. The Holy Spirit will pull you. <laughs> you understand what I'm saying? You, you cannot, if you're truly born of God, your mind won't, the thoughts might come. Don't get me wrong. And maybe you've had some struggles in that line. You will always be tempted in the direction of the struggles you've once experienced. Or maybe the new exposures that you were exposed to. 
the thoughts may come, but the believer, the true believer will not just say, you know what, all these thoughts, I will fulfill them to the glory of God. You cannot. The one who is born of God does not make a practice and a lifestyle of sinning. But he who has been born of God, which is you and I, keeps himself. I love that word keeps. The word keeps talks about preservation. It's, it's someone who rather would control their environment, control their influences, control their association. And influences and association are quite different. Influence could be media, it could be anything, but your association, the people you hang out with, you keep yourself, you preserve yourself, you control your environment just so that you can go about pleasing the Lord and obeying his commandment. And in so doing, the wicked one does not touch him. And it's similar to James chapter 4, verse 7, where it says, Submit yourself therefore to God, resist the devil, and what? He will flee from you. When you keep yourself from the influences of the enemy, guess what happens? The wicked one will not touch you. He will flee from you. Praise the name of Jesus. And yes, when, when we talk about this, there's a place, you know, even when we make mistakes, you know, the question arises, does the Holy Spirit leave us when we are in times like that? Does the Holy Spirit depart from us for a season? Does he come back? Um, does he leave? Um, for the believer in Christ, when you make these mistakes, I really do believe, um, I'm of the opinion that when you fall, literally, when a child falls down, that's the time they need the help of their parents the most. When a little child falls, they need the help of their parents to stand again and walk again so they can walk better and not fall back. And so I believe by this reasoning and the scripture that says that he will never forsake nor leave you, right? He will never leave you nor forsake you. I believe that in those moments of weakness, there we find the strength of the Lord. As God spoke to Paul and said, in this moment of your weakness, my grace is still sufficient. It shows the presence of the Lord. It shows that God doesn't abandon his own when they need him the most. And when you fall short, you need God the most in that time. It's the time where you approach his throne of grace boldly to obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is exactly what I'm talking about. And this is what he's talking about. He doesn't leave you, but is he grieved? Absolutely. The things the Holy Spirit sees through your eyes and he's grieved by them. He's grieved by them. And I always say there is no sin that is ever done in the secret. If you truly house the Holy Spirit and you house God, you're not doing anything in secret. You're doing it in the presence of a holy God. Let that ring and sink in. That's why the one who is born of God will keep themselves, will be intentional about protecting themselves and controlling their influences, their environment. Praise the name of Jesus. Verse 19, I'm almost done. We know that we are of God and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. So we are of God, but the whole world is influenced by the world. The, the sway of the wicked one, it, it's another way to say it when you say under the sway is heavily influenced. The world is heavily influenced by the wicked one. That's the prince of this world, the god of this world, the prince of the air, the god of this world, the devil. Actively, he, he controls and influences the world, but we are of God. And earlier, he has established that the one who is of God has overcome the wicked one. Glory to God. Hallelujah. Verse 20, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true. So there's an emphasis on true here because the world is presenting a false image a false image of God, a false image of religion, a false image of purpose and life and meaning and pleasure, right? But we know that the Son of God has come and given us an understanding that we may know him who
who is true. Remember, this is eternal life, that we know him, right? And we are in him who is true, in his son, Jesus Christ. So that we may know him who is true, that's God. And we are in him who is true, in his son, Jesus Christ. So this is literally what John said in John 17, 3, where he says, this is what eternal life looks like, to know the Father and the one whom he sent, who is Jesus Christ. He says, this is the true God and eternal life. Can you see this? First John chapter 5, verse 20 is literally a mirror of John 17, verse 3. The definition of eternal life. This is it. He's saying it in two different ways. And John 14, 16, he says that, like I've read before, that he's the way, the truth, and the life. He's the truth, the literal truth. He's a true God. He's the true way to the Father. Verse 21, it says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen. <laughs> this is such a powerful way to end it, right? Imagine this. There's no greet your brothers who are in this, no salutation like Paul would do. It just said, guys, uh-huh, little children, remember, keep yourselves from idols. Peace. Amen. <laughs> and he goes. But what is he talking about? Is it literal idols here? Is it graven images that they bow to? It could be. Of course, I believe that the idols in this context, because he doesn't address such gods. If they were actual literal gods, he would talk about, um, he would mention names, whether it's Baal or is the Greek gods. He will mention some of those things. Um, but I believe he's talking about idols in the sense of the things, the false deities that are taking God's place in your life. Whether the, the false teachers are bringing these false deities and these false ideas, keep yourselves from idols. Keep yourselves from this influence of the world to put something in your life that only God should be. And it could trickle down to other things, right? To more modern things that have the potential to, to be an idol in your life, whether it's money or pleasure, whatever it is, or power or fame. Whatever it is that has that potential, keep yourself from it. Reserve only one space for God and his son, Jesus Christ, whom you love, who has given you eternal life. This is how you keep yourself from the evil one. This is how you keep yourself from idols. You remind yourself that God is priority and he takes the utmost place in your life. He commands your affection, commands your devotion. But as we, as we round off now, I'm saying this to you that look, there's a confidence that you have. I want you to walk in this world knowing that you are, you are, you, you, God has your back. God has your back 100%. There is nothing that you need he cannot supply. It says there is a confidence that we have. That whatever we ask, if we ask anything, he hears us. And not only is he able to hear us, but to give us that which we have asked. We have the petitions that we have asked for. I am super confident that this has been a blessing to you. Keep praying with it and let these words drive you to action to live in the fullness of the will of God for your life. Stick around for more. God bless you. I love you.